If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash code assistant. IBM, let's create. There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's the groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. This Father's Day, power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. Find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? So I fell down this rabbit hole last week. I was looking up buildings that were good for the environment, and I stumbled into America's LEED certified prisons. So there are a few across the country. There's the one that Bernie Madoff is in in Butner, North Carolina. There's one in California that's supposed to be the greenest. But the one I really dived into was this article about Coyote Ridge Corrections Facility. It's in Washington State. And it's this medium security prison that was built in 2010. And on paper, it's pretty impressive. I mean, they've managed to reduce water consumption by five and a half million gallons a year. It's about $400,000 cheaper in energy costs than a comparable prison. They use narrow windows to trap the heat in winter, but also to keep the place cool in summer. And all of that sounds pretty good. Well, you know, it's the first full prison campus that's completely LEED certified. So you'd think it might be beautiful as well. But when you peek inside, it just looks like a horrible cement prison. Oh, no, that's so disheartening. Yeah. And, you know, it kind of made me wonder, like, what do some of the more interesting prisons around the world look like today? And what are some of the changes that are being made that seem to be working? So that's what today's show is all about. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikar. And the man behind that soundproof glass is aspiring novelist and country music legend, Tristan McNeil. <laughs> now, as we mentioned at the top of the show, today's episode is looking into how to build a better prison. And we're going to save things like how prisons work and great escape stories for future episodes. But, you know, today's show is really about how to build a system that works better for us all. I mean, however you feel about the humane aspects of locking people up, the economic aspects of prisons affect everybody. So we'll take a look at how some prisons from around the globe have reformed their approaches. 
Sure. So that's why you see those YouTube videos of Filipino prisoners doing thriller together or even why Brazil allows prisoners to do book reports to get time off their sentence for every book they read. Yeah. And, and, you know, that's clearly an attempt to deal with overcrowding. And it actually kind of reminded me of that whole Pizza Hut Book It program. Do you participate in that <laughs> as a kid? I loved it. <laughs> you know, you get a pizza for every, I think it was five books that you proved that you read. I don't know how you proved it exactly. <laughs> but, you know, except in this case, you get four days off for every book you write a report for. And also, it has to be grammatically perfect or it doesn't count. But if you read 12 books, you can get a maximum of 48 days off your sentence. And of course, not every prisoner is eligible. But, you know, just like that one, we're going to shine a light on a few of the innovative programs that are getting positive results both here and abroad. Right. And obviously, we aren't going to come up with clear cut solutions for such complex issues, at least not in 40 minutes of chatter. But what we can do is get a better sense of the problem and some ways people are looking to address them. All right. So let's start with what people probably already know about the U.S. prison system. And, and that's namely that it's massive. And by massive, I mean that our country has the largest prison population in the world. Though that's actually not all. We also have the world's highest prison rate. Out of every 100,000 Americans, roughly 724 are behind bars. And for anyone keeping track, that's about 150 people more than Russia's second place rate. Yeah, so I, I read this report from a group called uh, the Prison Policy Initiative, and it actually concluded that there are more than 2.3 million people currently incarcerated in the U.S. And if that doesn't sound like a lot to you, keep in mind that the whole population of New Mexico is just over 2 million. That actually does sound like a lot to me. I'm not <laughs> sure who that wouldn't sound like a lot to, but actually... Does this mean that we have more people in jail or in prison that we have living in an entire state? Yeah, or, or two states if you take Delaware plus Rhode Island. I, I mean, 2.3 million is a lot of people. It's, it's almost 1% of the national population. Wow. You know, and, and of course, when you factor in the family members of the prisoners who make up that 1%, that number actually affected by incarceration swells even larger. So I read this Pew study that found that nearly 3 million children in the U.S. have a parent in prison. Back in the 1970s, that was true for about one out of 125 kids. But today, it's one in 28. And according to that same Pew study, two-thirds of these kids' parents were incarcerated for nonviolent offenses. So that, that reminds me, do you remember that uh, secret museum in New York City? Yeah, I remember we covered it in a previous episode, right? Yeah, we've definitely talked about it. But uh, for those who don't know about it, it's this tiny museum that's housed in an elevator shaft, and every shelf of it's treated like its own wing. But but the curators there had all these giant backgrounds of things when I visited, of places like Hawaii or Greece or whatever. And, and I asked what they were, and, and the guys told me that their backgrounds used to take vacation photos at prisons. Basically, prisoners can save up and use their pay or good behavior to take photos with their families in these backgrounds so that the families have photos with their kids that look like they've been able to go on vacations together. And I mean, when I saw those, I just found it so heartbreaking. Yeah, no kidding. But what's worse is the recidivism rates of prisons. So according to the Bureau of Justice, about three quarters or 76.6 percent of released prisoners were rearrested within five years which is a terrible track record for U.S. rehabilitation. Yeah, and, and that's actually one of the main problems I came across in my research as well, is that our current system, you know, this current prison system, it's largely designed to punish and, and not to rehabilitate. Which I, I'm sure wasn't the initial intention. Like in Delaware history, I, I remember learning about William Penn and how he and other Quakers tried to change the prison system from this sort of overcrowded and inhumane conditions they saw in London. And one of the ways was with penitentiaries. 
like the idea was that you could go there to be penitent. And so they were totally quiet spaces and prisoners were given their own cells and the food was simple but good. And the whole idea was you get to think about your crimes and how you want to make amends to society once you're out, which sounds good in theory. But in practice, it was actually a terrible idea. Like this humane idea was actually just putting people into solitary confinement, which actually drove people crazy. That makes sense. I really didn't think of it that way. But, you know, the history of prisons is filled with stories of good intentions gone bad. And one of the things you realize in looking at the history is that there was a major shift in the nation's approach to prisons in the 70s and 80s. And this around the time we became less concerned with helping prisoners get their lives back on track and much more interested in making sure they suffered for their crimes. And that's when the war on drugs really started and also the big push to get tough on crime, you know, these mandatory minimum sentences, even for nonviolent crimes. Right. And during that time, the budgets for programs that focused on reintegrating prisoners, like they were totally slashed. And that was partially to build new prisons that were being immediately filled. And now the results of those policy changes speak for themselves, right? Like the prison population has more than quadrupled since the 80s, which is how we get to that over 2 million number we were talking about. And all of that creates a tax burden for citizens instead of working to have all these ex-cons contributing to society. Well, you know, I think it's safe to say that the criminal justice system doesn't work well when the only goal is to punish. Mm -hmm. Actually, reminds me, there's this Ricky Gervais joke where he talks about how Mandela went to prison for 27 years and then never committed another crime. And that tells us, you know, the system works. <laughs> and I mean, he's mocking the idea that you can just send someone away and they emerge rehabilitated. But as more criminals wind up doing hard time for low-level offenses, and there's a lack of reform programs, it really just leads to this revolving door system where prisoners are rearrested soon after they're released. You know, but the real question is, what are the alternatives? Are there any prisons out there that are finding better results from a more reform-based approach? So I actually looked into this, and, and it turns out some of the prisons with the lowest relapse rates also seem to be the most humane. And Norway in particular does a great job with this. So one of the most famous is this prison on Bastoy Island, where prisoners are allowed to ride horses, go fishing, play tennis. They can even go skiing. <laughs> <laughs> and they don't live in cramped cells either. Like, instead, the roughly 115 prisoners or so on this island, they shared these little quaint cottages. And, and they also have the freedom to wear their own clothes instead of prison uniforms. They can visit the prison library or church or even the shop whenever they want. Are you? I mean, this kind of sounds like a resort, Mango. This, I'm not sure this is a prison. <laughs> so I fact-checked this, and it is a prison. But uh, that's actually the main complaint against Bastoy. Like, critics say the softer approach makes it feel more like a summer camp than a correctional facility. But in its defense, Bastoy isn't all fun and games. Like, the inmates actually work every single day. They tend to the island's horses and sheep. They help out on the farm. They chop down trees to use as firewood. I don't know. That still sounds like camp to me. <laughs> They also take part in the specialized training programs that uh, that teach them new skills to use once they're released. And some of them also help run the island's ferry service. Ferry service, sheep farm. I, once <laughs> again, I have to ask, are you sure this is a prison? So it's actually the world's first ecological prison. And, and it uses solar panels for energy, grows most of its own food, and recycles as much as possible. And the whole idea is for inmates to claim a lot of personal responsibility for their actions including how they affect others as well as the environment. So one example of this is that most of the prison staff actually leaves the island at night via wow. that ferry service. And so the prisoners are expected to take care of themselves and be on their best behavior, even when they aren't being supervised. So let me just find this quote for you. 
Gerhard Plog, who's the senior advisor in the Norwegian Ministry of Justice, he explained the prison's approach this way, quote, Life inside prison needs to resemble life outside, as much as security considerations and resources allow. The more gradual the transformation from imprisonment to freedom, the better the chances to prevent reoffending. I mean, I have to admit that that is pretty neat, but I'm I'm curious, like, is it working or, or what kind of results would Bastoy be seeing? Yeah, so the prison has this incredibly low number of repeat offenders, which is actually the norm for Norway. It's, its national recidivism rate hovers between 16 and 20 percent. Wow. And I wonder how much of that is just people reoffending so they can get back to living the good life on the prison <laughs> island resort you described. Yeah. So so Norway has thought about that, too. And it's not at all like that. Prisoners first have to demonstrate a willingness to change while serving time in a more traditional jail. And then they can apply to like some of these more uh, lenient prison systems like Bastoy. But you don't have to worry about people abusing the system. If you reoffend or try to escape, you don't get to come back. Yeah. And, you know, I wondered about people trying to escape as well. I mean, there aren't any gates or walls or anything from what you described. And it feels like that would make escape pretty tempting. I don't know. I mean, except for the fact that life is already so easy there. I don't know why you'd bother to try to escape. <laughs> well, one prisoner did escape Bastoy in 2015. He was paddling away from the island on a surfboard. <laughs> I love that they had a surfboard there to begin with. <laughs> but, but, but they uh, they caught him pretty quickly. OK, OK. All right, well, actually, I found a different rehab-centric prison in Norway, and it's called Halden. Hmm. And while this one uh, doesn't offer ski trips or ferry boat rides, it, it does have some features that make it feel more like, I don't know, like a modern apartment building. So there are 252 prisoners there, and each one is given a private cell with a flat-screen TV, a mini-fridge, and an ensuite bathroom. Wow. And, you know, not only do prisoners have access to shared spaces like kitchens and living rooms and even a gym that has this rock climbing wall. There's also a recording studio for inmates to explore their creative sides. That's pretty awesome. So this sounds way more urban than the rustic cottages at Bastoy. And we know the interiors are nice, but are the prisoners allowed to leave the facilities? Are they allowed to go outside? Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's a jogging trail outside and lots of benches and stone chessboards scattered through the grounds. And Unlike those Quaker prisons you were talking about, the design is, is actually meant to encourage interactions between inmates and staff members. So guards and prisoners often eat together or play sports together outside. Huh. And, you know, the whole prison is surrounded by this 20-foot high security wall. And the designers left plenty of trees inside the perimeter to help to obscure it. And it kind of reduces that institutional feel of the space. And in the words of one of the architects, the landscaping, quote, lets the inmates see all the seasons. So, I mean, I, I know everyone appreciates these changing colors and seeing flowers bloom, but I can also appreciate the point of view that these kinds of indulgences might be going overboard. I, I mean, these prisoners did break the law. So how much should we be going out of our way to make them comfortable? I mean, you described a summer camp earlier, and this is the one you're taking issue with. But, but you know, it sort of goes back to that question of what's the main goal of imprisonment? You know, because I might argue that it's the court's job to punish a criminal by sending them to prison. And so being separated from family and friends and having your liberty curtailed, that is the punishment. And so from that angle, the punishment has already been carried out. But from that point on, the prisoner should be focused on remorse and rehab. Yeah, I mean, that's a strong argument. And and really, I think the only reason this more lenient approach gives some of us pause is, is that it's such a foreign concept to us. Like, we're so used to thinking of prisoners as these faceless wrongdoers and in need of punishment that, that we almost want the time they serve to be miserable. It's what we think they deserve as criminals. 
Right. And that's also human nature. But it is what I find refreshing about these prisons in Norway. And as strange as that might sound, is that they're way more hopeful about prison reform than we are here in the States. Hmm. And I think that's because they haven't forgotten that these are human beings we're talking about. I mean, these are citizens who can still contribute to society if if given a real chance to do so. So I read this article about Halden Prison written by a research professor in criminology. Her name is, uh, her name is Yvonne Jukes. And she really nails the importance of the rehab-based approach to prison. So she writes, This is not about making prisons softer or less of a deterrent to criminals. Normalizing prisons is essential if they are to be more than human warehouses that return offenders to society with their lives even more fractured and their life chances even more reduced than when they were admitted. The short-term and long-term cost of imprisonment, human and economic, are staggering and unsustainable. Well, I, I can definitely get behind that. In fact, why don't we dig into some of the specifics of those costs? Like, I, I know we spend a crazy amount of money each year on prison construction and upkeep, not to mention what it takes to actually house and feed millions of inmates. I'm just going to go ahead and rip off the Band-Aid here. Incarceration costs U.S. taxpayers over $70 billion each year, and that breaks down to more than $30,000 spent per prisoner. That is huge. Yeah, yeah that's that's rough. Yeah, and of course, that's just the monetary cost of prison. I mean, we already touched on the emotional pain that jail time can cause, and I don't want to dwell too much on those issues, important as they are. But in this discussion of costs, I do think we should talk a little bit about the jails and prisons themselves. Definitely. So I, I was looking up some of these figures as well, and there are over 100 federal prisons and close to, I think, 2,000 state ones in the U.S., and many of these are massive. I mean, they're these sprawling complexes that must cost a ton to build and, and then to maintain, of course. Yeah, and, and depending on the number of people it's meant to house, a single prison can easily cost well over $100 million. And like you said, we have so many correctional facilities. Like, in fact, there are more than 5,000 jails and um, county facilities like in the country right now. And if you add those up, that's more than the total number of colleges in the whole U.S., well, and not only that, but they're overcrowded. I mean, I remember this story from just a couple of years ago about a prison in California that gave early releases to 10,000 inmates. And this was just to ease overcrowding. Yeah, I mean, overcrowding is obviously the serious problem. And it's it's not just the logistical nightmare of trying to house people in a place where there's no room for them. I mean, there's also the emotional and psychological toll of living in those conditions. It's no secret that our environment can have this direct impact on our behavior. I remember reading this study from forever ago about, like, the proportion of fistfights that break out when people bump into each other and that people from crowded cities were more accustomed to getting bumped into. But still, like, what kind of behavior can you expect from people crammed into, like, a bleak, depressing building and made to live together under surveillance? I, I mean, think about that story you told at the top. Like, narrow windows are great for not letting heat escape in the winter, but... What does a sliver of a view do for your mental health? Yeah, it's true. And, you know, it's easy to imagine how all the added tension of living on top of one another, plus the disgusting food. I mean, that all might lead to outbursts. And, you know, of course, bad behavior leads to more time being added to prison sentences. Which keeps people locked up for longer and makes things harder for their families. And obviously it costs taxpayers more money. It's this layered, complicated problem, and it's so wide-reaching. Yeah, so not only do we need to build a better prison in terms of policy, we also need to physically construct better prisons, right? Well, we definitely shouldn't add to the total number of prisons since that's already way too high as it is. But one option would be to replace the current ones with newer models that break from the traditional concrete box with watchtower approaches. 
I mean, I don't know who decided prison buildings need to reflect the dreariness of actually being in prison, but I'm, I'm not sure it's doing anyone any favors. Well, there's a couple of places out there like these high schools and college campuses that I've noticed over the years that look a lot like prisons. And I, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but there's this uncanny resemblance between them sometimes. Have you noticed this? Yeah. I mean, you think about the older schools that have those like boxy, boring designs and like concrete and like dreary long hallways. I can mm-hmm. see that. Mm-hmm. Right. So I actually decided to look into this and it seems that there's actually a connection between the two. <laughs> really? Yeah, so the architect responsible for the San Quentin State Prison also designed a couple of California high schools. And that kind of overlap isn't uncommon, I mean, especially for high schools and colleges that were built in the 60s and 70s. So I want to dig into this a little deeper. So tell me why that is. Well, there was this architectural style called brutalism, and this was really popular at the time. And, And all kinds of public buildings and institutional structures were built using brutalist designs. They were full of these sharp angles and heavy, solid shapes that were cast in this reinforced concrete. And universities were looking to show how modern they were. So they started using these blocky, bunker-like buildings as auditoriums or libraries or even dorms. So then what happened? Like everyone suddenly decided that these places looked like uh, prisons? Yeah, so pretty much. I mean, public (laughs) opinion turned on them pretty quickly. And so tons of students and faculty and Other members of school communities began to speak out about how ugly these new buildings were. And it it even sparked a bunch of urban legends about colleges being built purposely to disorient and intimidate (laughs) students, you know, in order to prevent riots and political demonstrations. But, you know, at, at any rate, the brutalist fad died down pretty quickly, at least for the school designs. But prison buildings, well, we kept building these in the same style for decades after There's something about how impersonal but also functional it looked that made it perfect for jailhouses. Well, brutalism is definitely the right name for it. But, you know, it's funny you mentioned prison design influencing college architecture because I actually found a case of the exact opposite. There's this new women's prison in San Diego that's been taking design cues from modern college campuses. It's called the uh, Las Colinas Detention and Reentry Facility. And it's a partnership between uh, two architecture firms, KMD and HMC. They work together to design this new kind of prison that that aims to put a dent in some of the biggest problems found in correctional facilities. And you think about like assault, vandalism, and also recidivism. I mean, that sounds awesome, but but how would the architecture actually help with this? Well, the designers also took inspiration from healthcare facilities so they could make choices that would benefit the physical and the mental well-being of the inmates. So every decision from like the color, the materials, the texture of the buildings, and their furnishings – to even the more intangible elements like uh, light, air quality, acoustics, all of that was under careful consideration and based on research studies. And everything's made to help the inmates' mood and sense of community. There's stuff like floor-to-ceiling windows, shorter campus-style buildings, and uh, wide-open spaces that allow for easy access to nature. I mean, that definitely sounds like an upgrade. And, and, you know, the fact that we're talking so positively about a correctional facility within the United States, that's definitely a nice change of pace. So what do you say we see what other signs of progress we can find in the U.S. prisons? I'm for that. But why don't we break for a quiz first? 
thinking of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. If your business needs a new application, then developers will have to write code, a lot of code. If an application needs to be modernized, then you'll need time, resources, and caffeine. If that sounds daunting, then you need Watson X Code Assistant, AI designed to multiply developer productivity so you can generate code quickly. Let's create a more modern foundation for business with Watson X Code Assistant. Learn more at ibm.com slash codeassistant. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. Our guest today is a professor of literature and creative writing at Hamilton College. He's also led the Attica Writers Workshop inside Attica Correctional Facility and is the director of the NEH-funded American Prison Writing Archive. Welcome to Part-Time Genius, Doran Larson. Oh, thanks to you. Thanks for having me on. So, Doran, uh, in the Atlantic piece, I, I read that you'd visited uh, four high-security prisons in Denmark and Norway and Sweden and Finland and and one of the things I was struck by was how you wrote about the profound difference between how prisoners interact with the officers. Could you tell us a little bit about that? The basis for that is that the Scandinavian prison, and we really can't think of Scandinavian prisons really as one whole because uh, they look to each other and see themselves really as sort of one philosophy of, of uh, incarceration. Hmm. The base philosophy that they all work from is called normalization. And that is the experience inside prison should be as much like life outside as it possibly can be, since the intent is to prepare people to go back out and become productive, tax-paying citizens uh, once they leave. So it's an entirely forward-looking system rather than ours, which is very much backward-looking. You know, mm -hmm. we're going to you know, keep punishing you and holding you here until you know, there's some sort of arbitrary decision about whether or not you suffered that. Uh, there, it's all about preparation for leaving, and the officers are very much participants in that effort. So they are uh, there to work with incarcerated people to prepare them to go back out into the world where you know they're returning themselves every day. Um, and that changes quite drastically uh, everything uh, uh, surrounding the way they actually relate to each other. And another part of that is that the ratio 
of officers and staff to incarcerated people uh, is much, much higher than it is uh, in the U.S. We have about a 1 to 10, sometimes on certain shifts, 1 to 20 ratio. Mm-hmm. So American officers are constantly under a sort of state of siege because they're so badly outnumbered. Uh, there, it's not uncommon for a prison to have a prisoner-to-staff ratio of one-to-one. So there's not wow. that sense of, you know, uh, sort of being like an occupying army, which is in some sense the way officers um, operate in the U.S., in some sense the way they have to operate, yeah. uh, since we want both a mass-scale system and to have it on a cheap yeah, that, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. That ratio is incredible. But I, I think you said it, it wasn't just for the prisoners' benefit, right? It's also partially for the life of the prison guards? Yeah. One of the motivations uh, for making these kinds of changes, but not, not simply to have better uh, uh, results on the back end of a prison term, um, but the uh, in those countries, they had a problem that we still have, which is that prison officers here uh, have a life expectancy about 16 years shorter uh, than the general population. Wow. Uh, and the reason is not from being stabbed or killed by people inside. Um, it's uh, hypertension, uh, epidemic levels of, of uh, suicide, alcoholism, um, everything you generally associate with a scene of continued trauma um, because they're very stressful jobs. And, uh, you know, what we've learned from other scenes of uh, sort of organized oppression uh, is the oppressors uh, are as damaged or often as a damaged uh, as the people who are oppressed, because officers here really do nothing but negative things all day. They tell people what not to do, uh, they punish, uh, they regulate, and there's nothing that they can go home with at the end of the day and saying, I did something really positive, right? I helped somebody out. And that has real psychological mm-hmm. effects. Wow, I can't, I can't imagine. Now, you, you also write about uh, how adjustments are made in the Scandinavian prison system, and it, you know, it sounds like the criminal justice process really isn't part of the political process so much as it is, you know, being being left to professionals. Is is that accurate? Yeah. In all those countries, they've had a long history of, one, they've seen uh, with the experience of the world uh, Second World War, what happens when populist sentiment is what drives public policy, right? Uh, that you, mm-hmm. can, you can basically whip people up into believing in um, uh, taking actions that are destructive for everyone. And so with mm-hmm. that lesson as close by as it was, um, after the war, uh, they put enormous amount of faith in experts, people who are trained uh, to basically do their jobs well on the basis of evidence and the most recent science and to put those actions in place. And that de- depoliticization is obviously being challenged now because there are you know, right-wing nationalist parties uh, coming into prominence even in those countries. Um, but the basic, you know, function inside prisons has really not changed. I was there just this last summer uh, touring Sweden with students. The recent changes really just haven't penetrated there. Another thing from your piece that I thought was fascinating was you, you talked a little bit about Niles Christie and his conclusion that these uh, homogenous nations tend to institutionalize mercy. Can you speak <clears throat> about that with the U.S. and the diverse population we have in, in our prison system? Yeah, you know, the distance between the people who are voting for any particular policy or also sort of the philosophy or operate from the philosophy behind that, that voting and the people that, that those decisions are going to actually land upon, the greater that distance is, the harsher the punishments tend to be. And what Christie did is this actually came out of his work in the Second World War uh, and looking at who survived in camps 
uh, in the death camps and found that it was particularly people who at some point or another had made a human connection with the guards, literally just sort of lit a cigarette, you know, or they found out they had a common musical uh, interest, anything that would humanize uh, the held from the people for the whole, from the uh, human for the holders. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from that work, his very, very early work, he looked uh, globally at what these patterns are like. And the pattern held that the extent to which the person making a decision could find humanity and a sense of common humanity in the person the decision was going to be made about resulted in uh, milder remedies for any particular problem, right, that they wanted to legislate. Mm-hmm. Just like in the family, you, know, you have different consequences for your child stealing something than you have for your thinking about uh, home break-ins, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, one's obviously more serious, but it's not, on principle, different. It's a matter of, you know that person. You know all the circumstances under which they did that because they're jealous of their sister or whatever the situation might have been, right? Right. Uh, and Christie died just uh, a year or two ago. But his work, he was actually called in very specifically by Finland uh, when they realized that their incarceration rates in the 50s were out of line with other Scandinavian countries. And he and others were called in, academics were called in to say, what can we do to change this? That's incredible. Wow, that's that's really interesting. Well, is is there anything the world can learn from the U.S. prison system? Is, is you know, anything that we're we're not seeing about it? It's very difficult to make to sort of strike any kind of continuum, really. And I'm working on an essay now about precisely this, is that we can look at the practices in Scandinavia and we can ask ourselves, well, why can't we do that, what they're doing there? But there are very, very concrete reasons why translation is extremely difficult. Uh, one is simple scale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that the entire prison population of Sweden would fit inside San Quentin. You know, wow. on any particular day, there are more men and women uh, walking the yards of any single prison or jail in America, that number is greater than the entire prison population of Iceland, which is 124 people. So these countries, the Scandinavian countries are are quite wealthy, particularly per capita because we have much more even distribution of wealth and they have extremely low incarceration rates. So they can spend three times per incarcerated person uh, over what we spend. Mm-hmm. So ours is an expensive system, but it's expensive because of size, not because of how much we spend on individuals. So mm-hmm. when you have those scale differences, it's really hard to make those comparisons. It would be fairer to say, um, you know, what's Sweden doing and what's Oregon doing? Or what's Sweden right. doing and, you know, what's Michigan doing? And there are progressive measures that are being taken in individual states. Uh, but overall, of course, we're sort of, you just grossly over-incarcerated here. Sure. Mm-hmm. I think really it, what uh, Europeans take from us is simply the negative lesson, right? We don't want to do this because we know where that goes. They've already done it uh, in the U.S. Right. right? So I, I know you've been uh, teaching and working with prisoners since uh, I, I think around 2006. Um, but what gives yep. people hope in these high security settings and, and what do they get out of the writing? Out of the writing, it's not simply the writing and the isolated, you know, sitting down, you know, it does all the good that writing does for anyone, you know, a place to reflect, a place to uh, essentially sort of sort out one's thoughts. Um, But what I found in the setting uh, at Attica, uh, which is quite a brutal prison, uh, is that equally important 
was that two or three hours in a room with other men whose only priority was working on their writing and discussing literature. Not debts, not vendettas, not all the other stuff, politics that's going on inside the prison, mm-hmm. as well as watching out you know, for a famously a brutal staff. But a moment in which they are there because of the minds they bring in, not because of the bodies and the objects they bring in. And that just having that community of trust uh, is enormously important. And then, you know, I had to sort of teach them to critique each other because they were so, you know, sort of universally supportive of each other's work simply for having produced it, which Mm -hmm. is extraordinary in a place like that. Right. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. over time, you know, they learned that, you know, as great as it is that someone's produced a piece of work, you can also help them along by pointing out what's problematic in it. Right. Yeah. Uh, and those that have published, and they published extremely well, uh, the New York Times, the Atlantic, um, uh, Harper's, uh, Esquire, uh, a lot of top literary journals, um, you know, those moments when you see your name in print, uh, really, and I've had men tell me this explicitly, I'm no longer just my crime. I'm now a writer. That's how people know me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And maybe mm-hmm. more people will know me as that than the people who see me as nothing more, as literally sort of disappearing behind my crime. So it can be a real transformation of self-conception, right, and self-image, which is very, very constructive uh, for them. So for our listeners that are um, interested in reading more and and learning more, they should definitely check out uh, a book that Doran edited called Fourth City Essays from the Prison in America. Uh, But Doran, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course, of course. Thank you. of popping the question? Diamonds Direct has an offer you can't miss. This month only, buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at $2,000. Imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once. No one provides education, selection, and value like Diamonds Direct. Your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at Diamonds Direct won't last long. Details at DiamondsDirect.com. Before AI can help your business predict demand, accelerate growth, inform decisions, automate tasks, reveal insights, generate content, you have to trust it. Introducing WatsonX Governance. Helping you govern any AI as data, models, and policies change so you can scale it responsibly. Let's create AI that begins with trust with WatsonX Governance. Learn more at ibm.com governance. IBM. Let's create. This Father's Day, shop at the Home Depot to find the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. He's the weed-fighting, hedge-trimming, leaf-blowing lord of the lawn. He sees the job, and he gets it done. Because your dad is a doer. So show him you appreciate everything he does with the tools he needs to power up his landscaping game. This Father's Day, give him the convenience and gas-like power of innovative and durable Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools from the Home Depot. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad does, everything he is, and everything he can be, find the perfect Father's Day gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Shop for Father's Day now in stores or online at homedepot.com. 
Okay, so Mango, you were really lifting my spirits talking about the Las Colinas detention and reentry facility. And <laughs> yeah, I like it because it seems to adopt the same humane approach to incarceration that we saw in those Norwegian jails. And it's really just cool to see that way of thinking taking root in the American prison system. Yeah, definitely. Instead of the typically like stark and alienating environments we associate with prisons, these are more like tight knit communities, almost like a college campus or a small village. And that ends up feeling way healthier than just a people warehouse. Well, building a sense of community and purpose is actually a common thread that I noticed in lots of prison programs that aim for rehab and reintegration. And one of my favorites is a program organized by a nonprofit called Hudson Link for Higher Education in Prison. So in this program, they allow inmates to enroll in college courses that count toward a degree once they've been released. So for the last 19 years, the group has partnered with eight colleges, one of them being Columbia University, to offer classes to inmates at six different correctional facilities. And so the program's aim is to increase the chance of employment upon release and reduce recidivism. And so far, it seems to be working. I mean, release prisoners who have taken classes offered through Hudson Link have a recidivism rate of less than 2%. That's unbelievable. So what kind of stuff are they studying? That's a little bit of everything, really. I mean, one of the courses from last year was a literature humanities class. So they read and discussed ideas from ancient authors like Homer and Virgil. Which sounds heavy, but uh, how's that helping the real world? I I, I mean, I, I feel like a college parent talking right now. Right, exactly. Well, you know, just like any liberal arts student will tell you, you know, studying classics helps develop critical thinking skills. And so... You don't learn just how to read well or write well or speak well. You learn how to think well, too. And and that can be useful for people who are interested in, you know, better life choices. But according to the course instructor, Professor Laura Kulkowski, there's also another benefit to engaging with these books. She says it can help students gain more confidence so they feel more comfortable taking part in other debates once they're released. As she puts it, there's really a deep value for them to feel like, yeah, I can read this stuff and talk about it. I, I'm part of a civil society and can be part of a larger conversation. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And and I'm definitely for any program that helps prisoners find their voice again. Speaking of, have you been listening to Ear Hustle? Oh, I haven't. I'm actually so glad you brought it up because I was going to if you didn't. Yeah. So for any listeners who haven't checked it out yet, Ear Hustle is this biweekly podcast about life inside San Quentin State Prison. And that's interesting enough right there. But the really cool thing is that it's created and recorded and also produced by two current inmates and this volunteer local artist, all in the very limited free time they have every week. And one of the inmates, Erlon Woods, co-hosts, and this other guy, uh, Anton Williams, handles all the show's sound design. It's all done through a keyboard borrowed from the prison's media lab. It's pretty awesome. And, and it reminds you that these are human beings we're talking about. Yeah, it, it is amazing. And Ear Hustle is full of interviews with different prisoners on all sorts of topics. So they'll cover things like justice and regret and love and race and isolation, but you know, also more mundane things like you know food and pets and disagreements with cellmates. It, it's definitely worth a listen. Yeah, but, but it's also just like this great example of what a program that invests in prisoners as people can lead to. Yeah, you know, and because we're talking about the importance of giving prisoners a voice, I want to share Wood's own take on what he considers the aim of the podcast. So he writes, I want the listeners to be able to relate to the struggles that we go through on a day-to-day basis and not get caught up in the us versus them mentality. We're all the same. Some of us just took different routes and needed a timeout and a little rehabilitation to get back to responsible behavior. 
So I know we started by acknowledging that fixing the entire prison system is beyond the scope of our 45-minute podcast, but... uh Wait, are you about to tell us how to fix the entire prison system? <laughs> yeah, definitely not. And I know I'm at risk of sounding like a PSA here, but I would encourage anyone who's heard anything on today's show that surprised them to do your own research and even let your congressman or woman know about anything you find you don't like. It might sound silly or Pollyanna, but just raising awareness about problems in the prison system can really help make those two plus million citizens who are part of it feel a little less invisible. Yeah, I think you're right, Mango. I mean, it's definitely a start, but, um, you know, I don't want you to think that your PSA announcement will win you any sympathy in today's fact off, just <laughs> to be clear about that. So I'm going to kick this off with one person who definitely doesn't seem to have been rehabilitated. Quartz reported that in prison, Bernie Madoff, who scammed America out of so much money, used his economic savvy to corner the hot chocolate market and then sell it in the prison yard at high margins. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Apparently, anyone who wanted some of that sweet Swiss miss needed to go through Uncle Bernie to get a taste. He clearly feels a lot of regret for what he's done. That's crazy. All right. Well, here's a fact I found surprising about a Spanish prison called Arauez, which is notable for having cells for families. So normally, if an inmate has a baby, the child is sent to foster care or to live with relatives. But here, the child is allowed to stay with their parents until they're three years old. The children have toys and other kids to play with. And the bonding is supposed to not only help the child, but give the parents something to look forward to after their sentence is served. So this one totally baffled me. But have you heard that uh, prison authorities in Abu Dhabi are planning a jail where inmates could serve their sentences without ever meeting a prison guard? So how does that work? So instead of interacting with guards, this humane prison has people communicating with, quote, social workers, trainers, psychologists, counselors, and medical staff. And they continue, uh, quote, security guards will be available behind the scenes, but asked to intervene only when necessary. Wow. I'm definitely curious to see how that works. Me too. All right. Here, here's one I found curious about the Civil War prison camp in Elmira, New York. Apparently, the prison camp had two observation towers for visitors where they had concession stands selling peanuts, lemonade, and cakes, all while you watched people suffering below. Oh, that's so gross. Yeah. Also, uh, it's a little different than the Philippines prisons where they charge visitors to watch them dance to Thriller in Greece. I mean, that's to make money for the facilities. But uh, speaking of entertainment... Did you know that the opening song of the Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, was actually an old track from 1959 recorded by prisoners? The most amazing part is that 40 years later, the Coen Brothers actually tracked down one of the prisoners, this guy named James Carter, and paid him royalties. Oh, that's perfect. I I've actually got one about a different James Carter, and this is an incredible story I read in the New York Times about Jimmy Carter. Apparently, this woman, Mary Prince, who'd been convicted of murder— was assigned to work at the governor's mansion in a work release program when he was there. And after Carter spent time with her, he became so convinced that she was innocent that he applied to be her parole officer. Also, he could take her to the White House to be his daughter's nanny. Prince was eventually pardoned, but it's kind of an unbelievable story. Oh, I like that one. And ending this on a hopeful note. So you win today's trophy. And that's it for today's Part-Time Genius. As always, if you've got comments or feedback, please don't hesitate to write us at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com or hit us up on our 24-7 fact hotline, one eight four four pt genius So that's uh, still 24-7? <laughs> you bet it is.
Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eve Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? the question diamonds direct as an offer you can't miss this month only buy a natural diamond engagement ring of one carat plus and receive a free natural one carat diamond tennis bracelet valued at two thousand dollars imagine giving her the ring of her dreams and her wedding gift all at once no one provides education selection and value like diamonds direct your chance to get a free tennis bracelet from your friends at diamonds direct won't last long details at diamondsdirect.com your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those, too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at fisherhomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings. You wouldn't expect to hear that we're America's third best city for beer like this one. Or home to vibes like this. And this. It might surprise you that we're top 10 for immersive art that's like. Whoa. And. Hmm. Not to mention, we have one of the top zoos in the country. So can a city with the country's best pro soccer team, ranking as a top culinary destination in the world, be in your own backyard? Yes, Columbus. Plan your summer at experiencecolumbus.com slash summer.